tell you a story. It's a story about six people who died violently in Germany in 1922. It's a story about an investigation that went on for decades, but never identified the perpetrator. It's a story that has become a legend. I want you to come with me into history, into the long, cold dark. This is Long Cold Dark, the story of the murders at Hinterkaifeck. This episode contains descriptions of violence and violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. You should know that I built a scale model of the Hinterkaifeck crime scene. Images are in the show notes. They'll help you understand where pieces of evidence were found. You'll also find the few original crime scene photos there. They're useful, but they may be disturbing to some viewers. Investigators believed that the Hinterkaifeck murderer had watched the farm for some time in advance, watching the Gruber family to learn their habits. This theory was informed by several pieces of evidence found at the scene. Tiles had recently been removed from the roof in two places. The two sites would have offered a pair of vantage points overlooking the entire Hinterkaifeck courtyard, alerting a hidden intruder or intruders to anyone entering or leaving the property. Because the attics of the house and barns were all interconnected, an intruder could move around the complex from one lookout point to another without ever descending to the ground floor. The surveillance theory was bolstered by reports from neighbors that Andreas and Victoria had talked about strange happenings on the property in the days leading up to the murders. This suggested to them that someone was lurking around the farm. You'll recall that Andreas told neighbors about finding a strange newspaper, that his house key had gone missing, and that he found footprints leading to, but not away from, the barn. Investigators took these reports seriously and used them to develop their theory of events. The animals present on the farm provided clues as to the time of the murders and the possibility of the killer occupying the farm over the weekend. The Gruber's dog had been injured at some point. Records indicate that the dog had been hit in the face to frighten it into compliance because it was aggressive to strangers. The police report notes that, quote, his right eye is clouded and a little swollen, and the dog also appears terrified. He pulls in his tail, writhes up, and begins to tremble violently. He doesn't allow himself to be touched. He bites. This dog was locked in the stable every evening and was also inside the stable when Schlittenbauer and two other residents of Groburn entered the property after the crime. Whoever the killer was, he must have felt confident that he could control the dog. Michael Plokel recalled that the dog was tied to the exterior of the bakehouse on the night he passed by Hinterkaifeck, the night he encountered the man with the pocket lantern. It's possible that the killer kept the dog alive so that it would alert him to anyone coming onto the property. I want to reassure you about the dog. We don't know his name, but he survived the ordeal and he was adopted by the Gabriel family. 
There is conflicting evidence as to whether or not the livestock at Hinterkaifeck were cared for after the murders. No dead animals were reported at the scene. Even the very young animals, including the nursing calves, survived. Lorenz Schlittenbauer apparently fed them on the day the bodies were discovered, and took at least some of the livestock to his own farm after the police arrived. August Huber passed by Hinterkaifeck on his way to a friend's hunting lodge on Saturday, April 1st. He recalled that the farmstead was quiet. There was no smoke coming from the chimney of the house and no chickens in the yard. He remarked to his companion that the farm seemed abandoned. He particularly noted that he did not hear any sounds of animals in distress. Hungry cows are loud. They make a noise that can only be described as a bellow. Johann Schlittenbauer, Lorenz's son, was present at Hinterkaifeck when the bodies were found, although his father wouldn't allow him into the house after finding the bodies in the stable. Johann recalled that when they arrived, the cows were quiet. He speculated that the cows were quiet because they were dehydrated. Jacob Siegel was of the opinion that the animals had been fed and watered after the murders. He said, as a farmer, the cattle did not give me the impression that they had been without feed for several days. I even believed there was a mother calf, and it would certainly have screamed loudly if it had not been fed one or more meals. Heinrich Ney recalled that the three or four dairy cows standing in the stable of the Gruber estate were milked during the days after the crime, which could be deduced from the fact that their udders looked normal. I'm going to talk a lot about cows now because I grew up on a dairy farm. I'm familiar with their ways. Dairy cows are generally milked two or three times per day. Leaving a dairy cow unmilked for several days can cause serious health issues. It comes from pressure buildup on the cow's udder. The fact that Heinrich Ney said the cow's udders look normal when you might expect them to be swollen, infected, or cracked if they hadn't been milked this strongly suggests to me that someone was looking after the cows at Hinterkaifeck. An adult cow requires about a gallon of water per 100 pounds of body weight per day in cold weather. Uh, the common wisdom is that a cow will drink a bathtub full of water in a day. A milk cow will need double that in order to continue lactating. A cow may survive up to seven days without water but a pig will die of salt poisoning within 24 hours of its water supply disappearing. Lorenz Schlittenbauer got permission from investigators to take two of the Gruber's pigs over to his own farm. The pigs were ill, but they were alive, which, which suggests that they had received water within 24 hours of the discovery of the bodies. This means that either the assumed date of the murders is incorrect and the Gruber family weren't killed until shortly before they were discovered, or that someone did in fact spend several days living at Hinterkaifeck after the murders, and that someone took care of the livestock during that time. That care suggests that the killer was familiar with farm animals and livestock operations, and confident enough to handle unfamiliar animals. Now we're going to turn to the descriptions of the wound patterns on the bodies beginning with Andreas. The clearest description of Andreas' wounds comes from the 1953 deposition of Heinrich Ney. The right half of old Mr. Gruber's face was bruised, 
The cheekbones stuck out. The flesh was torn. The face was caked with blood. Andreas suffered a single crushing blow with a blunt object, concentrated on the area of the right temple. Nea also described bruising in the right eye area. Bruising can occur in the area of a forceful blow even after death. A close examination of the crime scene photo, which you'll find in the show notes, shows a dark discoloration of Andreas' right hand. Now it's possible that this is dirt from the stable floor. It could be blood transferred during the movement of the bodies. It could be pooling of the blood due to liver mortis. It could be bruising incurred at or about the time of death. It's also entirely possible that this area of darkness is just a shadow, a trick of the light in a hundred year old photograph. The discoloration is not mentioned in any reports or witness statements, and it's not visible in the second stable photo. Absent more evidence, it's impossible to determine. Andreas' head and face are not visible in either photograph of his body. A brief description of Cecilia's injuries appears in the transcript of Reingruber's April 7, 1922 phone call to public prosecutor Renner. This call summarizes the autopsy findings. Reingruber reported that Cecilia had seven blows on the head, traces of strangulation, and a blow on the head in the shape of a triangle. The top of the skull was cracked. The triangular hole in Cecilia's skull would be consistent with the pick end of a mattock, or one of several tools with a pick-like point. Her body is not visible in any of the crime scene photos. Both Cecilia and Victoria are described as having strangulation marks, but the accounts conflict with each other. It is unclear if only one of the women, or both, had these marks. Victoria suffered the most extensive wounds. Reingruber reported that Victoria's face had been smashed with a blunt object on the right side. There was a small round wound on the upper skull cap coming from a sharp tool. The skull was shattered. Renner's report of April 10th notes that Victoria had no fewer than nine star-shaped wounds on the head and also showed traces of strangulation on the neck. There is no further description or image of the star-shaped wounds. It's unknown whether these penetrated the skull itself or only the skin, or if they could be matched to any of the suspected weapons. And we don't actually know what they mean by star-shaped. This could mean a number of small fractures radiating from a central wound, or it could refer to a single wound with an irregular shape, that is, something other than an obvious puncture or slashing mark. Heinrich Ney testified that the back of Maria Baumgartner's skull had a hole caked with blood. The next day, the forensic doctor found that the hole was about four centimeters deep and was probably made by a sharp hoe. Conrad Weissner's April 6, 1922 report says that her skull was smashed by crosswise blows. In the crime scene photo of Maria's body, which you can find in the show notes, her head is under the bedstead. Her torso is perpendicular to the bed. Her legs, which are covered by a duvet, lie parallel to it. Maria lies on her left side. Her left hand, which appears to be clean and unmarked, is visible. A pool of what is probably blood spreads outward from her upper body. In the photo, it appears undisturbed. Her backpack is sitting on a bench. 
and we can see that the bench appears to sit at a very unsteady angle compared to the rest of the visible furniture. It's highly uneven, and looks as if part of a leg has broken. This might indicate that Maria fell on this bench after being struck and damaged it in the process. The maid's room was small and very narrow. In this enclosed space, it might have been nearly impossible for a body to drop cleanly to the floor without first impacting at least one piece of furniture. This may account for the crosswise blows described by Weissner, one impact mark caused by the warder weapon, and another caused by impact with the corner of the bench or against the bedstead or the floor. Joseph seems to have suffered the quickest death. However, the only official description of his wounds is two sentences long. The whole right side of his temple was struck a powerful blow. The blow first hit the open roof of the stroller, which severed it and then smashed the child's skull. Joseph's body is not visible in any of the crime scene photographs. A photo of his carriage in Victoria's room is in the show notes. Whether he was struck with the same weapon as the other victims or with a different object or by how many blows is now impossible to determine. Celia's wounds were maybe the most puzzling. In addition to a shattered skull, she had suffered a wide, deep gash at the bottom of the chin. Heinrich Ney describes this gash as being in the area of the carotid artery. George Kerner, who was 13 or 14 in 1922, went to Hinter from Schrobenhausen when news of the murder broke. He and a number of other neighbors saw the bodies of the victims before the police arrived. Kerner describes Seely's body as severely injured in her jaw, and she had a tuft of hair in her hand. I assume that the hair was her own, which she had pulled out herself in pain and agony. I also noticed bloody finger marks on her neck. In my opinion, this is a sign that the girl reached for the painful and bleeding wound. Seely also had a round puncture wound on the right side of her face at the level of her nose in the area of the zygomatic bone. Andreas Schweiger told police that he had the impression that the girl's throat had been cut and she had been killed with a shot in the right side of the face. In reality, however, the child was killed with the pick that was later found. She'd been hit. Although the autopsy report itself has been lost, Ney recalled that Dr. Almuller, the district court physician who performed the autopsies, was of the opinion that Seely only died two or three hours after her injury. Seely's body is not visible in any of the crime scene photographs, and no further information regarding her injuries is available. No defensive wounds, or wounds anywhere other than the head, neck, or face, are reported in any of the victims. No description of any marks, bloodstains, or damage to the victim's clothing survives and no description of their hands, which might tell us whether the victims fought back, exists. In addition to the footprints that Andreas reported to his neighbors before the murders, at least one witness recalled seeing tracks in the snow at Hinterkaifeck over the weekend, before the discovery of the bodies. August Huber recalled noticing footprints in the snow leading toward the Hinterkaifeck courtyard on April 1st. When we turned right away from the courtyard and walked toward the forest, I saw very clearly in a large sheet of snow, the ground was partly covered with snow, men's footprints that led to the courtyard. 
but I remember that the tracks were in the direction of the courtyard and not the forest. When I think about it, I definitely believe that no footprints led back. Between April 1st and the discovery of the bodies on April 4th, more snow had fallen, and any tracks would have been covered up. By the time police arrived on the morning of April 5th, the Hinterkaifeck property had been overrun by neighbors and local officials, turning the courtyard into a nightmare of overlapping, useless prints. Whatever tracks the killers may have left would have been obliterated before police could even begin to search for them. The four bodies in the stable had been covered with an old door, which was itself covered with hay in a heap about a half meter thick. The bodies were not very well concealed. Searchers found them because the feet of at least one body were sticking out of the hay. Maria's body was covered with what appears to be a thick duvet from her bed. Again, her feet were visible, and in the photo of her room, the duvet has been partially pulled down to expose her body to the camera. Initially, she was completely covered, except for her feet. Joseph's carriage was covered with one of Victoria's dresses. His body was not initially visible to the neighbors who searched the house. Joseph's carriage was severely damaged during the attack. It was hit with such force that Joseph's blood splattered over the walls and roof of the carriage. Andreas Schweiger recalled that he saw nothing of the boy until he pulled back the dress covering the carriage. What I saw was the child's brains hewn apart. Notably, the blow that killed Joseph came through the top of the carriage. It wasn't pulled back to expose his head as an easier target. Joseph was already covered up in some way when he was killed. And after the child was dead, the killer threw one of Victoria's dresses over the wreckage. The bodies were concealed, but only barely. It seems like an opportunistic heaping of nearby objects over the bodies, and it may only have been intended to hide the victims from the killer in the short term, rather than from neighbors and investigators in the long term. The blood present at the crime scene indicates that the victims were killed where they were found. Aside from loosely stacking the bodies in the stable, the perpetrator did not move the bodies from one location to another after the murders. Maria Baumgartner was found in a large pool of blood on the floor. Inspector Reingruber was specifically looking for footprints, and he took note of their absence in his report. When he described a search through the house, he wrote, There were individual bloodstains visible on the stone pavement, but no marks, no footprints. The bloodstains Reingruber refers to were located in the entrance to the kitchen. They're not visible in any of the crime scene photographs and they're not well described. I think the most likely explanation is that they're drip marks, that blood dripped off the murder weapon or the killer's clothes while he moved through the house. But again, we just don't know. Rumors abounded that the Grubers were wealthy and their farm was well supplied and the family had a reputation for stinginess in the community. All of this naturally led to curiosity about their finances. However, robbery really doesn't appear to have been the primary motive for the murders. The house wasn't ransacked. A number of watches, some jewelry, and some cash were found in the house. And the food supplies, the animal fodder, and the tools in the barn and stables seem to have been left intact. 
The only evidence of a potential robbery was an empty wallet found on Victoria's bed. Her financial papers and land deeds had also been scattered around the room. Beyond that, nothing else of obvious value appeared to have been disturbed. That the killer occupied the Gruber's property for some period of time after the murders was established by investigators very early on. This is a weird thing in the history of murder. There's only a few other documented cases. The most directly analogous case is maybe the unsolved murder of the Miyazawa family in Setagaya, Japan in 2000. In that case, the killer apparently entered the Miyazawa's home through a second floor window screen. He stabbed and strangled two adults and two children, and then stayed in their home for several hours. During that time, the killer ate food from the Miyazawa's kitchen, used their first aid supplies to treat wounds he had suffered during the course of the murders, he used the toilet, he used the computer, and he slept for a while on the couch before making his escape. Taking over the home of the victims might indicate that the offender was a wandering killer who stayed there simply out of convenience until he figured out his next move, or it may indicate someone known to the family who would have known the layout of the house and felt comfortable there. Maybe he even felt entitled to it. Despite a thorough search of the farm and grounds and an investigation consistent with the forensic standards of the time, nothing of the killer's identity could be determined from the evidence at the scene. It was as if a phantom had descended on Hendrik Haifek. Next time on Long Cold Dark, we'll meet some of the suspects. I'm C.S. Frank. Thanks for listening.